0: I had to choose to age gracefully and not fight it. So when I go to races, I've got no problem with other runners that I used to compete against and beat with them going ahead and winning these races. Like I, I know where I stand, so it's it's neat that I can look at that. And so I'm still challenging myself, but you know, I've been going after Canadian age forty five um records. So that's motivating. And um, but it, it's it's not about time and money or making national teams. It's just kind of staying in it because I I still love it and I wake up every day wanting to run.
1: That's Krista Duchesne, Olympian and current Canadian record holder for women's 50 kilometer run on this episode of Silver is the New Gold. I'm Karen Lonzo, and this is Silver is the New Gold, a podcast that shares stories and insights about women's participation in sports after 35. Krista Duchesne is a lifelong athlete. From an early age, she was playing many sports and showed a lot of potential in both hockey and track. She played high-level hockey until the end of her university career and then turned back to running in an effort to keep fit and because she enjoyed sports. Sounds pretty ordinary, and that's how it started out. Since she ran her first marathon in 2002, however, it was clear that she was anything but ordinary. She has a long list of achievements including Rio 2016 Olympics and simultaneous podium finishes at the Boston Marathon in 2018, placing third overall in the women's event and first place in the women's master's event. Yet, in spite of the fact that she is undoubtedly one of the trailblazers for Canadian women's long-distance endurance running, she remains true to her roots, sports are fun, and for life. She's equally humble and inspiring. Here she is to share her story. Hi, Krista. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk with me today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, my... So I, I did, um, uh, a long time ago now, Big and Little Sisters, and um, my little sister, who is now nearly 30, so she's she's no longer little. She was at a, a conference, I think, a few weeks ago. I think you and Mandy Bujold, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, were there. Uh, she does. Um, she works at the Y like for, for child care services. Anyway, so she recommended you for the podcast. And then I looked into it and I was like, oh, my God, she's awesome. So super jazzed when you agree to, to come on. Right, I After think I, it. yeah, I know what
0: you're referring to. It was a little video that I did that they played for early childhood educators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, recorded yes. It and they played it at a conference, and I was basically saying how you know important they were watching my kids when I was training.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. So she really enjoyed that anyway, um, and uh, so then I started to read up on you, and I was like, oh my god. It's crazy if you go if you go through the website, which I I went through. It was just inc- the list is really really long, uh, So get definitely get into to some of that. But um, one of the things that I I enjoy when I read uh, your list of achievements is that you've been called the marathon mom. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about that moniker? <laughs>
0: Well, it made perfect sense when I was given the title at the time, because it was on Mother's Day, that I ran my first marathon after having my second child, and I won it. So that was uh, the beginning of of that name. And I guess it stuck with me since.
1: That's amazing, though. How long after just, uh, you know, tangent, how long um, after you had your second child, did you get back into training to do that marathon? So, I
0: think, oh boy, I have to like get my phone out and look at dates and whatnot, but I, th- I think he was just um over a year when I ran that year. I can't quite remember, but um, yeah, it's all kind of blurring together now that <laughs> kids and all these but, um you know, for all three of them i I returned like you know kind of safely um just gradually got my way back to running and also cross training to just let my body, you know, heal and recover. So, um, Mm -hmm.
1: I think, I think it was
0: about a year for him.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's, that's really impressive. So you're best known for your adventures. Um, in elite performance in marathon running, uh, obviously with the name, you know, moniker of marathon mom. Uh, and we're mostly going to talk about that, but, uh, you were also a high performance athlete in hockey before then, right? So you were on your high school team and you compete at the OUAs, which are the, uh, Ontario university athletics championships with the university of Guelph. So how, how did you get into hockey initially and what drew you to play competitive? Well,
0: I still remember the day when um, my sister and I were tucked in bed. We we shared a bed. There were six kids in our house, and we were the only two girls. And my dad asked us from the door, would we want to play hockey? And our faces just lit up. Like, I'm sure we didn't even get to sleep after a while. <laughs> we we had three older brothers who played hockey and, you know, my parents raised us that it didn't matter, you know, who you were, boy or girl, you could, you know, do what you wanted. So I started when I was four and back then, you know, you learned how to skate by pushing a chair. And then I played with kids in my school and just continued on through those years. And at the end of high school is when I chose hockey uh instead of running because those were my two favorite sports i guess you could say at the time and went to guelph for the nutrition program and their hockey program and just ran on the side so uh, i had four um successful years there and um retired when that was done and just got back into running for fun and
1: fitness So you were still running. Did you kind of use running as like um, more of an off-season training? Yes. Or you just enjoyed running, yeah? Right. So I
0: can't remember if
1: I ran races in the summers
0: of when I played hockey. I don't think I did, but I just used it to stay fit. Right. And in my first year at Guelph, they actually called me track star because I was a walk on. They didn't really know where I, or who I was in terms of, of my hockey skill, but they knew I could run fast. And so I got that nickname early on when we did dry land training, getting ready for hockey. Cause I was like at the front of all the running workouts in the first year, you know, beating the fourth
1: year's. Oh nice. <laughs> Is there a scenario where you would have stayed in hockey uh or had it kind of run its course once you you graduated?
0: Yeah, I would say that it did run its course. It it's a sport where um like it it's more difficult to to train because you have to be with a team. And you Mm -hmm. have to travel and live with them for a long time. So this, this year we have actually Jocelyn LaRock is my neighbor and she's on team Canada. And, you know, they had to live in a bubble for weeks and months, uh, so that, you know, they would reduce the risk of spreading COVID and whatnot. And so I just knew that it wasn't really great, um, to try to pursue that when I, you know, my husband, and I would want to have kids someday. And I just kind of felt like I, I had a good go of it. And, um, I just knew that that was the time to kind of, you know, put it behind me.
1: Yeah. Cause you were an MVP you were a top scorer, you know, you were named an all-star like, and that's not, that's not nothing. That's, uh, that's quite a successful hockey career, you know, for even for like the OUAs and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, like that's pretty, pretty impressive. <laughs>
0: yeah. I would say, see- that um, like there was there was a near opportunity for me to have a tryout with Team Canada, but to be honest, I I don't think I ever would have made it. Like the tryout would have been neat in itself, but you know, even back then there were a lot of really excellent hockey players, and um, you know, I could compete, you know, against them at OUA's and and even at nationals, but um, probably didn't have quite what it would take to make the team anyway. Had I if I wanted to pursue that.
1: It would have been cool to go <laughs> just to see. Um I went to uh I I went to a, a World Cup for fencing back in February, like a, a senior World Cup. And um it was just awesome to be in that environment. So a few days ahead, there was like a, a training camp. So I asked, you know, to go and I just wanted to experience and it's like, yeah, just to be in it for a few days with like that level of athlete, and to see how they how they train and how they fence, like it was such a a great experience. Even if you know I'm not going to be at the top of the fencing mm-hmm. stats, but it, it's still really cool to to like experience those things. So, yeah. Um, so you went to university and you became a registered dietitian. Uh, were you influenced to go into that because you were so big in into sports? Like, were you, did, did, um, did that, yeah, did, did sports influence that career move? And I'm just curious to know, like, how well that's, you know, helped you with your running and with, with sports later on. Or is it just sort of like a happy coincidence that they kind of go together?
0: Uh, I would say there were a few
1: factors that,
0: um, drew my interest into going to go for nutrition um you know we were seeing the connection between diet and health like chronic diseases and my parents had cancer. So I thought it was interesting to see how diet may or may not have been connected to their cancer as well as, you know, diabetes and heart disease and those kinds of things. So that I thought was, was interesting. I really, um, loved babies and pediatric health. So I thought that would be another kind of way to, you know, apply my nutrition knowledge to that after graduating. And, um, mainly it was. It was a career in the health field that um, had a good level of balance. In that, um, I, at one point, I wanted to be a registered nurse, but the idea of working nights just didn't appeal to me. So I would have
1: loved to <laughs>
0: yeah. be an obstetric nurse, but you know, babies come when they're going to come. And you know, the dietitian field was relatively new at the time, um, not very new, but just more people were were doing it, more programs were offering it, as well as internships. And it was just kind of the perfect fit for an applied science. So learning the science and being able to teach it to people so that they could, you know, make those changes in their life without being overwhelmed with like the, you know, the technical jargon or the the too sciency, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's uh... (laughs) a... I mean, that's a whole other tangent too, but you hear all these stories about how a lot of athletes look fit, but they're not healthy because while they eat a lot, they're not always eating the right foods. And it's like, how important is, you know, diet for longevity in sport later on, right? Like as you get out of your thirties and into your forties, like how important is that? So that's um, it's really interesting. Um, so you got back into running after you graduated to kind of for fitness and probably because running, uh, of all the physical activities you can do running probably the most convenient in the sense that if you have shoes, you can go when you want to go, like you can, you can fit running in recreationally, I guess, into your schedule versus having to fit your schedule around running. Right. Um, so so once you did start running again and you like, did you realize you could be like a elite athlete? Uh, like what goals did you have initially when you started or was it really just for fitness?
0: Well, yeah, you raise a good point in that running is a sport that you can just do anytime you want, you know, morning, night, afternoon, you make it work, you don't need to wait till the gym opens. And, you know, back to the hockey, you, you could only go to the arena at your certain time practice with your team running is, is more of an independent activity with, with, you know, less, you know, um, no, no structure. You could just build it yourself. So yeah, definitely. Um, the fitness appealed to me just to kind of stay in shape. And then I think I just kind of started to run a little bit more every day. And I think the longest race I had done was probably a 16 K road race back in Alvinston where I grew up. It's actually the longest running road race in North America, older than Boston. Anyways. Really? So Yeah. So I, um, I just started running a little bit more and I was working part time. And after my fourth year, I didn't get my internship. So I took an extra year to work on what was necessary to get my internship to be a dietitian. So during that year, I volunteered and worked and and got back into running. So there was one day in Guelph when I went out and I ran what I thought was about 18 kilometers. So back then, before we had garments that, you know, or or watches that distance and pace, I drove what I ran and thought, Hey, 18 kilometers. Well, marathon's 42. Why not? So that kind of just, I just kind of came up with that idea by myself and I gave myself about a year to train. And then when I, I did my first marathon in 2002, I remember getting on the bus, and I felt like a kindergarten student going to school for the first time. And my husband was, you know, on the sidewalk waking, waving goodbye, and the tears are going down my face. And I have no idea what I'm getting myself into.
1: um,
0: You know, during the race, I I was fit and I ran, you know, according to the the fitness level I was trained for. And, um, you know, like every marathon, you wonder why you're doing it when you're doing it, and it hurts. But as soon as you cross the line, you're, already thinking about your next one so that was what it was like for me you know finish the marathon and thought okay
1: when's the next one and the rest is history so yeah so were your overall results like better than you thought or was it just that you you completed the race and it was the endorphins were just so high that that was the hook like you did the one and you're like that i'm i'm in
0: yeah it was some. Um probably a combination of things. Like it's, you know, really satisfying to set a goal and to train and run the time that you've been prepared to run. And and it was a, a Boston qualifier for my first, which, you know, people thought was a, a big deal. And I hadn't really thought much at all about running the Boston Marathon. It was just I just was running a marathon and maybe that would come someday, but, um, yeah, I think it was, it's a combination of things that just makes it such a fun sport because, you know, if you're driven to work hard and then you get that reward from the time that you run, it's something that, you know, why wouldn't you want to repeat that?
1: Yeah, I just, I, I was thinking, um, cause I've, you know, quit quote unquote fencing hundreds of times, like well, maybe dozens, but, um, I like I'll I'll do really well at something like I I went to Barcelona which was like a huge deal for me and I did better than I thought I was gonna do and I'm sure I did better than a lot of people who were like who is this old Canadian woman and why is she winning bouts like what's happening you know and then I came back and I hit a like a valley like a pretty low one And then life happened and I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I'm never going to get back there. And then I did, you know, a smaller tournament and I won it. And I was like, I can do this. So, you know, there's so many like highs and and, like lows and then you do well and that's the hook and it brings you back in. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering because I I know that I've had that happen many, many times. Right. Mm Um, So what does full-time training look for you? So you started in 2002. You're like, I ran 18 kilometers. Why the heck not? Let's do 42 because double plus two or actually double plus six, (laughs) that's nothing, right? Um, So compared to, you know, how you were more recreational, like how many hours do you have? Once you decided you were going to go to the next marathon, how did that change? And how did you, how many hours do you train competitively compared to when you were just running recreationally?
0: Yeah, that's a good question because I think um, I would say that my progression with like my mileage and intensity and how I trained was, was, was kind of linear, it was really gradual, so you know with every marathon, I kind of built on the one before, so I would go a little bit deeper in workouts, try to little, go a little bit faster for longer, my runs would get longer, my um, weekly mileage would get longer, I kind of um had you know a few various coaches throughout the year, I kind of stepped up to different levels depending on where I was at. Uh, So like with every marathon, I just kept taking big chunks of time off. And um, so the training now isn't as much as maybe it was like, I don't know, maybe four years ago or like, you know, 2016 when I was training for the Olympics. But like right now, I'm probably running like... I don't know, 10 to 12 hours a week, but my mileage is low right now because I'm not training for a marathon. So when I am training for a marathon, it's probably more like 15 hours a week. And that's just straight running. So um I've I've run as many as two hundred kilometers a week. Marathon training in the last like five or six years has been like peak 180K a week. But I think this fall when I train for hopefully Chicago, I'm gonna do a little bit less. Just because I just don't think I need to be running that high of mileage and I I get slower to be honest. So,
1: um, Mm. and then on
0: top of that, you know, I do strength work and like preventative maintenance and stretching and rolling a little bit of that. Not a lot, to be honest, um, drills. I have a swim spa in our backyard where I, I sit in that and that really helps, you know, with, um, keeping injuries away. So, um, I don't know, maybe close to 20 hours a week, but maybe sometimes it's only 15.
1: I, I just kind of balance it out. Right. And do you find now you do more of the, the cross training now as you, uh, compared to when you first started? Um, because I would imagine well, it's true with really any sport. If you just do one activity all the time, you get overuse injuries, right? Um, and we'll come to the injuries in a bit, but do you find now that you, uh, cause I would imagine you've trained your body for so long to, to be good at running that maybe you can scale that part back a bit and do more of the cross training and the balance to, yeah, avoid further injury. So do you, are you able to cut back on the running and then just supplement that with like different workouts? Or do you still need to, if you're going to train for a big race, still need to put in that like big amount of time? Like my goals are different now and
0: I'm older. So I think I'm more, I guess, wise with my time in that, you know, my, I know what my workouts will need to be to run the time that I want to, um, this fall. And with that, I guess I don't need to be running as much as I did before. So my cross training is probably less just because if my running is doing what it needs to do, I think the cross training would just be tiring me out whereas, you know, in, mm. when I was at my peak in say like my late 30s even early 40s, I was doing more cross training, but I think it's really that balance of of knowing how much energy you need to put into it in terms of what you're going to get out of it.
1: Right. So so going back to when you first uh, s- decided, I guess, that you wanted to do running competitively. What support systems did you need to have in place to be able to make that investment? Because, you know, were you worried at all uh, as well about what would happen if to your career as a dietitian if you worked only part-time? Um, asking for... A- <laughs> for myself who love to find a way to do less work and do more play. I'm I'm really interested in in how you were able to make that happen um to make that move to more competitive running.
0: Well, I it may have been that Mother's Day race where I got the title marathon mom back in I don't even remember what year that was. 2009 I think that I I won prize money because I I won the race. Mm-hmm. And that's when my husband thought you know, do you want to take this to the next level? Do you think you could benefit from having a coach? And I got thinking about it. And fortunately for us, we, we planned our budget early on in our marriage that we would only, um, rely on my husband's income for the most part, and that we would try to make it work with me staying home with the kids and not have to work full-time. So basically, you know, any money that I've made, um, over the years, I mean, we've we've used it wisely, but you know, it hasn't been me needing to win a, a race in order to put like food on the table. So that's okay. that's been really beneficial and that there's been absolutely no pressure that I need to perform to live, which isn't the case Mm. for a lot of people. So I think because I got into it later when I was already married and established with my career, I could work part-time. And then with it came other opportunities like the broadcasting I do now or the public speaking. Now I'm coaching. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been great to, to have these opportunities that have come from, from all of these years.
1: Did it help that he is or was an athlete that he had a a sense of how important being a competitive athlete could be. Like he appreciated that, that part of you that enjoyed being competitive and and wanting to invest in that.
0: Yeah, I think so. Like he played um, volleyball at university, so he understands life as an athlete, but I think also that he just kind of saw like a talent and, you know, kind of a, a lifestyle that I would like where I could, you know, push the kids in a stroller and get fit and, you know, use the daycare at the gym and then have fun running a race and win prize money. Like that's, that's a pretty sweet deal. So it is. <laughs> he, he's been the one over the years who can kind of see the next step before me. And I'm the one that needs more time to think about it before I make that move. So by the time I do, he's kind of like, yeah. That's good. I, you know, I suggested that last year, but good for you. I'm glad you made that decision.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, sometimes you got to get to that on your own, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so you'd been training and running for the better part of 10 years, uh, running approximately one marathon a year when you really started to make consistent top level achievements. So if I go through, like, you know, if you go through your, your list, Talk about eight to eight to ten years before you started being consistently like near the top. Do you do other smaller races throughout the years to prepare? Do you set your sights on one big event uh, and train for it? Is eight to ten years like the standard to really start hitting hitting your stride? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pun
0: intended. <laughs> I think for me first of all like, you know, I just did a marathon as a bucket list item. I wasn't someone coming from, you know, collegiate track and field that excelled, you know, in the 5000 and then wanted to move up to the marathon that way. So, um, you know, I had nothing to prove and nothing to lose over all these years. And then with with my running, I would, you know, run a couple years, do well, and then have a baby. And then it's like, you know, you press the reset button again. So that that happened three times. But each time I had a baby, it was, you know, forcing yourself, you know, kind of mentally and physically to just take time off um, from competitive running. And then you've got that fire and that passion to return to it, knowing it'll take time. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I enjoyed it so much. So I think it's It's different in that most people, you know, retire from competitive sport, then they have children. Whereas I was completely the opposite. Like I was hitting my fastest times after my third was born, but that's all I knew. And, and again, like I said, I had nothing, um, no pressure on me to be performing. So it was just like, Hey, I can just keep setting the bar higher and higher. And that's what I did. So, you know, I would typically, you know, focus on like two marathons a year, um, when I'm, I'm not having a, a child now, our kids are older now. They're like, our oldest is 16, 14 and 11. Right. So it's been a long time. And now I've been, you know, doing two marathons a year, you know, ever since our last one was born. So those, those years where I was getting faster, I had the the breaks of having a baby in between if, if you want to call that a break. <laughs>
1: yeah. I was just going to say, how did your, did your training have to change at all? Did you notice any significant changes um, especially after the first one, because that would have been a new experience for you, right? Having your first baby. So how did your running change? How did your training have to change? Did your, did you were you one of the lucky ones where you just kind of were able to come back or did you notice uh significant changes and you had to really tweak your training to, I, to I come back was, to the level you were at?
0: Yeah, it was just really gradual with my rep- my approach back, and you know still back then, early on, it was still pretty much just running marathons recreationally, so um i would I would approach it like I would be training for a triathlon, and I did a few actually after the first two were born because that was a way for my body just to ease back into fitness, so you know one day mm-hmm. I'd bike or I'd swim or I'd run as opposed to just running you know six days a week, so that I think allowed my body. To, to heal and get back into running so then eventually I would kind of decrease the swimming and the biking as my running picked up and I got closer to racing season which would usually be you know like start with a 5k a 10k half marathon marathon is kind of how I might approach that six month time period.
1: Did Did the triathlons also help you relieve a bit of pressure on yourself like I'm, you know, if you had started only running right away, you might have thought, "Well, I'm not as fast as I was." Whereas this, we are like, "I'm in a totally different sport." Um, you can refresh your your mind. You can do other things. the The goals are different. Um, and then, you know, when you, like you said, you came back gradually. Do you think that that actually helped you because you could just put yourself in a different mindset of something that really, I mean, not that you didn't do it for fun and, and want to do well at it, but it wasn't really something you, you care to be elite at, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. It was, there was, there was even, you know, less pressure, not that I ever really put pressure myself, but you know, I'm, I'm doing a triathlons with, with these elite people who have these like magnificent bikes and the, the whole kit. And, you know, I'm just some runner with a baby who's out there having fun. And it was, it was kind of an easy way to return to fitness where i didn't have to make any comparisons because you know the bike mm-hmm. and the swim, especially I was weak, but then the best thing about those events is the run is at the end, so I could be passing people because that would be my strength but yeah, exactly what you said, just that it was it was a great way to return to you know a sport that got me fit again, but competing not at that elite level or thinking I was in any category competing against these other like professional athletes.
1: Right, and you're not comparing your times immediately after because your triathlon times don't matter against marathon yeah. times. Right, yeah. So in 2014, you were racing at the Canadian National Championships and hoping to repeat your your victory from 2013. And uh, then the unthinkable happened. You, you fractured your femur. Can you walk us through that and and tell us what happened with that and and how in the heck did you break your femur.
0: <laughs> yeah, so um yeah, I was I was really fit and I was hoping to defend my title as as national champion and I planned to run the marathon at the Commonwealth Games that summer. And, uh, earlier on in the week when I was to race, I had this pain in my leg and I didn't know what it was. So, um, my treatment team wasn't sure. So, you know, they basically said, okay, travel to the race, which was in Montreal and just see how you feel when you get there. So I I did a little jog. It was like, oh, it seems okay. Wasn't really sure. And then I did the race and, um, I was leading for, for, you know, most of the race And I remember Rachel Hanna was getting a little bit close to me once and I kind of sped up a bit, but uh, with, um, about, I I'm guessing here, I have told the story over the years and, and I'm not exactly sure, <laughs> but I think with about 5k to go, that one leg where I had that pain, that leg started to weaken. And then with like maybe 500 meters to go, I couldn't put wet, any weight on it at all. And I've done the I've done the wrist before, obviously. So I knew how mm-hmm. it ended. You kind of curve. And like, as soon as you see the finish line, like, you know, it's over. So I hopped right. on my good leg and finished the race and then was, you know, swept up into the arms of Alan Brooks sent to the medical tent and then later sent to, um, the, the uh, Montreal General Hospital, where they found out that I had fractured my femur about 80%. So a little bit more would have been really ugly. But um, when I was there, they sent me for a CT because of my, my family history, both of my parents had cancer, and they thought it was maybe a cancerous tumor that caused the fracture. Oh, my God. but Then they did determine that I had a stress fracture in my femur prior to the race. And that's that pain that I had earlier on in the week. Mm. We didn't really know what it was. So basically that little crack just grew throughout the race. And then I had to have surgery that night to get, you know, a plate, two small screws and a large screw put in my leg
1: to repair it. That is intense. Like, yeah. Is that a common injury? I feel like having a fractured femur is, is pretty rare. I feel like a a tibia or like your fibula, you know, that more but like a fractured femur, that seems very intense.
0: Yeah. When I was kind of doing research on it, the only people that I I found were, you know, elderly people who, um, you know, had osteoporosis and, um, fell. So those, there weren't many stories for me to kind of, uh, relate to in terms of that. So no, not a common injury. Stress fracture, yeah. I was just going to
1: say you, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you looked at the data and saw your own name in there. <laughs> yeah. You're the test case for people under the age of 70, right? So after that, that's a, that's pretty intense and that's a pretty big surgery. Were you afraid of recurring injury after that? Uh, how did you build your, your strength and confidence to get back to racing? After?
0: Well, I mean, I guess kind of like my career where I was this Runner that was getting faster after having kids and and came from a hockey background, I thought, you know, I can write my story. I can make anything happen that hasn't happened before. I don't have to wait for someone else to do it first to believe that I can do it myself. And, you know, even looking at women in Canadian running, no one had even qualified for the Olympics Um, in in many years. So it was this kind of chapter that needed to be written. So Mm
1: -hmm. when I was
0: in the hospital, I just remember thinking like, you know, baby steps, you know, quite literally where it was, you know, could I use my crutches to get to the washroom and back without feigning because I kept feigning when I was there. And then it was, you know, once I was discharged, being able to walk to the mailbox and my crutches. And then eventually it was, I was walking with a cane. And, you know, when I was in the hospital, The day after my surgery, I thought, okay, I'm going to get that Olympic standard. It's just going to take me two years. Two days after my surgery, I said, no, I'm going to do this in one year. So when I went from like, you know, the crutches to the cane to the walking and when everything was clear and and healed and I got approval to, to start jogging it was, you know, jogging, walking, running, walking, eventually getting up to, you know, one kilometer at race pace. And then it was 11 and a half months after that I got the Olympic standard for Rio. And I was the first person in 20 years, but it was again, just building really slowly, trusting that I could get back to that fitness and what was required, but there was never any guarantee.
1: It's not really that slow or that slow though. I mean, you're talking about a, a big, you know, relatively scary fracture. And then within 11 months, you are running your second fastest race and qualifying for the Olympics. So I feel like that's actually a, a very fast recovery. I mean, you think about if you had been casted, right? A cast is is six weeks and then you think, okay, well, there's muscular atrophy after that. So um, building that back would take... So 11 months is not... <laughs> Maybe it's it's slow for you. I don't think it's that slow. I think that's a that is a amazing, amazingly fast recovery after an injury like that. And to just be like, yep, well, I have this giant stress fracture. And yeah, uh, I'm gonna try and get to the Olympics. And so you did qualify for the Olympics, which is amazing. You were the first Canadian to qualify in how many, how many years? Well, it was 20 years. And then Lady Marchant, she, she got her standard right after
0: that. And we were both named right. for the marathon, but we were the only two women. There wasn't a vacant spot, but we were the, the first two women to compete, um, in 20 years. That's amazing. How did that feel? Yeah, it was really special, especially for Lanny and I, because the year before we competed at the world championships in Russia and there was a heat wave and the race was at two in the afternoon and it was really ugly for both of us. And we had... run in Rotterdam in 2012 and um we appealed um trying to get onto the team for the 2012 Olympics uh because we felt that there should have been two standards for the marathon like there were for the other events. So anyways, we didn't make the team then, but I think it just kind of we certainly made a name for ourselves in the, you know, running community for Canadians. And and not that we we didn't have a chip on our shoulder. Like I just wanted to keep running and and pushing myself and being the best I could be. But it was it was pretty neat you know, for people to, to see our story and to know, you know, that we had a rough time, um, Mm -hmm. in 2013 and in 2012, when we went over to Rotterdam to run the race, um, I remember being at the, the pacing meeting ahead of the, the, the race and, um, you know, the, the guy that was assigning pacers to the times kind of looked up at us like, really, you want to run, you know, low 230, um, to try to make it to the Olympics knowing, you know, I hadn't, I was, you know, I had three kids and the last time I had run a marathon was 239 and I think Lanny's was even slower, but you know, we, we both ran like 232 low. I think Lanny was 231 high, but I think it, you know, it, it kind of paved the way for, um, younger women to, to see that it could be done and that, you know, now we're going to see that spot filled all three spots for, you know, worlds and upcoming
1: Olympic games. Did your injury help you? I kind of want to go down this this injury path because I I of a little bit, and then we'll come back to the Olympics and the Boston Marathon. But did the injury help you become better attuned to your to your body? Like, do you now notice the small tweaks as you run, and can you compensate uh, on the fly to kind of avoid injury? Because you are getting faster, so it you know, like in spite of the fact that it was a fracture of a very large, important, you know, leg bone you you are getting faster and your times are only getting better and you're competing um high you know and placing high in open fields and you're you're topping master's events so how is that actually has it been able to almost help you like read your body better and and adjust better to avoid injury so that you can continue training at the level you want to train at to do these events well
0: it's interesting because after we realized why I had the stress fracture uh which was I had relative energy deficiency in sport so basically I was you know overtraining underfueling and you know I'm a dietitian so it, it was difficult for me to say listen to your body because when I was training and I was under fueling thinking, okay, it's good to be lean. And, and, you know, it, this is a, could be a whole podcast in itself talking about reds.
1: But, mm-hmm.
0: um, I, I kind of felt like I couldn't say that anymore because there were times that I didn't listen to my body and, and I made mistakes, but, you know, now I can share my story and, you know, Rachel, Hannah has had it and, and many other people, you know, share their story about that to, to help prevent it in others. So, um, it took a while to kind of get through that process, but, um, I, I think that, you know, I, I've been at it for so many years that I can kind of look back on, on those mistakes and what I've learned and it can only make me better, um, moving forward I guess um you know in terms of the like I'd never had a stress fracture before now and I did have two after one in each foot which I think was kind of still a result of that under fueling but mm-hmm. I, I didn't mm-hmm. I stopped running immediately so I actually went out to Edmonton to run a half marathon in 2015 and I had this pain in my foot and it was like automatic in my head I'm like this isn't good. I knew it was similar Mm -hmm. to kind of that feeling that I had in my leg where it was like, this is different. This, I can't massage this. I can't stretch this. This is unreachable. So I didn't even start the race. So I went all the way out to Edmonton, stayed with my really good friend, Mary Davies. She ran well and, you know, boarded the plane, like in tears on my way back. And sure enough, it was confirmed that I had a stress fracture in my foot. Now, the good thing with bone injuries is they heal. It's black and yeah. white. Let it heal, leave it right. alone. You can do some light cross training if it's not going to take away from the healing. Um, and then uh, again in 2017, but I think that was, I just had, kind of too many races in a row. So again, when I had that feeling in my foot, I didn't even go for testing. I just knew what it was and I just completely shut down the season. So I think I learned in that sense in that I knew what a stress fracture was and I knew, okay, it's over. When you have a stress fracture, you need to call it quits, let it heal
1: and, and begin again. And so I, I, uh, yeah, the, I, I'd love to to talk about breads and and all that stuff. I've been listening to Um, some podcasts and, you know, of course, Mary Kane and the whole Nike Oregon project that is been in the media and a lot of that is, you know, really bad in terms of, of how they were told that they were fat and that you didn't need to eat. And I, I can't imagine how you can tell someone to not eat enough food. Like you have to have weight to like move your, you know, but anyway, so that's, yeah. It's it's really interesting. Um, I know I I'm a low energy person just in general most of the time. So I I struggle with with like how much do I eat, how much do I work out in a day, how much is too much, uh, you know, and balancing balancing all the the life stress, right? Like for me, it's work or like the crazy long commute to go and do training. For you, it might just be having to be in all the places that your kids need to be at. Um, so I know. Uh, how hard it is to to even start to think about how to get enough energy to do all of those things. So I yeah, that would be <laughs> I'd love to go and talk about that but that again, that's another that's another podcast and that would be a good a good podcast for sure yeah. So I'm sure that, you know, the injury was, was somewhat disappointing. And and like you said, you had that other stress fracture later on, and and that's a bit disappointing too, especially when you spend the time and, and the money to like go to those events and then either not be able to start or not be able to finish. Um, and so in between all of the huge accomplishments you've had, you've also had some, some disappointments, but you, you do seem like the kind of person who, doesn't put like too much pressure on yourself all the time but I am wondering how you do deal with those outcomes like when you do get to a race and you can't finish or you get an injury, uh, especially if you only do a couple of big races a year and so if you're trying to qualify for like the Boston Marathon or the Olympics, if you only have a couple of races per year to get points and you don't do well, how do you deal? with disappointment to get back into training uh you know and just to to keep going and trying and, and reach those goals
0: i i think i i look at you know the bigger picture in that um maybe i didn't have you know the best time performance in a race that i was capable of but i might look at the build and say okay i had a really good training block for 12 weeks. I know when I went to Kenya for a month in 2017, you know, my training was great at altitude, higher mileage, you know, very fit. And then, um, I drank concentrated beet juice and I didn't dilute it and had stomach issues during the race. And, you know, you think, how could I be so stupid? Um, but we, we, you know, we make mistakes, like Mm -hmm. I said, and, and we, Look back on that, and I I haven't touched the stuff since. <laughs> but, um, so I just remember being there, thinking like I was in like two twenty seven, two twenty eight shape. But I trained so well in Kenya, I took it to that next level with the coach that I had at the time. And then it was the following year that I got third of the Boston Marathon. So it's like, oh, cool. Like you know, last you know, April two thousand seventeen was like a disaster traveling all the way over to Europe to race after being away from my family for a month but getting third in Boston that kind of you know that kind of takes care of the 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 discouragement or the disappointment that that I had the year before and, and you know over the 20 years it's it's been just that kind of constantly
1: right see that's the that's that hook that I was that I mentioned earlier where you do great and then you have a valley that's really low and then you're like I don't know if I can do it and then you have a good event and you get well for you it's the Boston Marathon first to qualify and then to place and that's that's kind of that hook that that keeps you coming back to it right
0: yeah and i think you know my my faith as a christian and believer is 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 my whole entire perspective. I'm not defined by my performance. I think, you know, I love the quote from Eric Liddell. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So I, I don't have this, you know, this need to, to prove anything or to, um, you know, I, I just, whatever, whatever I get from it, I enjoy it and I work hard. And I've grown more as a person in those deep lows and disappointments than I have at the best races. So, you know, when I do talks to schools, Mm -hmm. I talk about 2013 when Lainey and I were both going after the 28 year old Canadian record and she got it before me. So to all these kids in a gym, I will say, you know, I had a choice to make. I could kind of pout and just walk away from it all. Or I could say, you know, I'm the second fastest Canadian and I ran a 228 and that's still my best time. And that was my best, even though it was the second best in Canada, that was my best because, you know, you look around the room most of these kids aren't going to be winning races, you know, they're going to be second or last. So that's where I've grown the most as a person, um, to, to be better for who I am. And, um, you know, so when I do have those, those, you know, amazing races, like the Olympics, it's just, you just kind of look back at that and you think, Oh, this is a good balance.
1: Yeah. I just, I look at, um, in terms of of sport and like managing expectations and disappointment, because I think when you do events or sports where there are a couple of big events a year and you put all of your focus into that, it's a lot different than say uh, a league sport or like hockey or soccer, where you can dilute your performance over X number of games. So let's say you get a case of the yips (laughs) Right. And that can be very frustrating and it might be like three or four games. But over the course of like a 10, 20, 30 game season, it's really it's really not that much. Right. Versus um, if you trained for world championships or the Boston Marathon and like let's say you qualify. uh, I'm not sure how the qualification works, but even the Olympics, you qualify the year ahead. Right. So if you qualified in 2015, then your next big race is like. 2016 at the Olympics and that's a whole year to train for you know one event and I think sometimes you can feel like man like I just really want to do well this is like the big the big deal you don't have all the little possibilities all the little victories uh, in terms of actual games I mean you can have training wins but they're not the same I mean if you win in practice it's not the same as like winning like in tournament or whatever so Yeah, it, I think that's, it's just a a very different type of, um, of management of expectations and outcomes when you put everything into one big thing versus spreading it out over, over multiple chances to, to compete. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, what goes with that is that whole phrase of, you know, control the controllables and there's things that you can control and things you can't. So when I went for my standard in 2015, I was in in really good shape. And at one point, you know, I'm thinking, hey, I, I might be able to beat the Canadian record that Landy had set two years before. But then it was a little bit windy in the second half. And I I made a choice. I'm like, I'm not gambling and risking losing my Olympic standard to go after the Canadian and then maybe lose both. Mm -hmm. So I just like settled in and, and stayed at that, that pace that worked for me that day to guarantee my, my spot in the Olympic team. Um, Because, you know, yeah, you've got one day and, you know, with a marathon, you can't just hop from weekend to weekend and just kind of try over again because, you know, there's so much recovery that, that comes after
1: marathon. So you mentioned, uh, the Boston marathon, which I think is the marathon that everybody knows. Um, and you placed third overall and first in the master's category. So big, big day for you. How were the Olympics and the Boston marathon experiences different for you? Um, and which one, if either was more important in terms of, of achieving your goals and, in expectations
0: i I mean I, I guess I'd have to pick the Olympics in terms of that because I was pretty you know specific with my training and you know, wanted to, to do well, especially after my, my bad experience with the heat, the world championships in 2013, I really prepared, um, in the heat and humidity here. So that when I got to Rio, I would do well. And I did. So I think I was ranked about 70th going in and moved my way down to about 30th, 35th overall. So I was really happy, you know, that I was just gaining spots and my family was there. So Mm, my, my husband kids my coach at the time three siblings i mean nothing beats that when you cross the finish line at the olympic games you look over you run into the arms of them and you're hugging and kissing and you know it was just people were taking pictures it was just amazing whereas boston was completely different i didn't go there aiming to be top three overall i was hoping top three masters but um you know, the day that came was perfect for me as a Canadian. It was cold and rainy and windy and no one liked the, those conditions. And I thought, hey, this isn't bad. I've trained in this all winter and spring. So only my husband was there. And, you know, when I crossed the line, even, even the, the, the man that was escorting me back to the hotel, he didn't even know how I placed. That's how crazy the weather was. Oh, my goodness. So you know, I finished third and he couldn't even tell me what place I was in because it was just chaos.
1: This Canadian's a big baby. And would not train in that weather. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have an indoor, I'm an indoor person. I had a, I had a soccer game last week. Yeah. Oh my God. It was, it was like, we got out there at the start and the second I stepped out of the car, whoosh, like poured and it was so cold. And I was like, it can either be cold or it can rain. <laughs> it cannot do both. <laughs> this is June. Yeah. This is not okay. You know, <laughs> Yeah. And I just embraced it because I just
0: kind of looked around me and Eric Gillis, who was there, he said at dinner the night before, you know, Krista, a lot of these athletes are not going to like this. And I just went, I was thinking the same thing. And then, you know, it's, it's crazy how it ended up.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. Was that your first master's race or have you, had you done ones before that? That was, I'm trying to think 2018. I was 41. Um,
0: no London. Um, I, I won the masters in London, even though it was a, it was, you know, I was disappointed with how it went. Um, so I guess that would have been my second world major as a master
1: runner. Does that start at 40 for marathon running? Yeah. Yeah,
0: I count it. I think some people count it as 35, but I think most of us just stick with 40 is, and up so then now they they just go by by like every five years okay. is how they kind of categorize. It. okay yeah. yeah
1: it's different for all sports right and and fencing is a little bit different in that um so nationally like the national federations will like recognize 40 year olds as seniors but the international okay. governing body does not have world championships for veterans they call them veteran fencers because we reserve the word master for coaches oh. um so it starts at 50. So the world championships, you know, is 50, but like the federations have 40. Yep. So there's kind of like, like a, you're in limbo for a long time. You got to compete at the open level. If you want to do international events until 50, it's a very big gap anyway. So I was just curious, but yeah, some sports are 35 and some are 40 and some of it's a giant mix. So yeah. whoever will let you in. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, out of curiosity, because in fencing uh, with training and there are, are a number of like mixed events, um, and they definitely make the tournaments very different if you're you're fencing with women or you're doing a mixed event. So, I'm curious to know for running, does running a combined race with men change how you race? Do you notice any differences at all uh, in how you race with them versus gender segregated ones? Like, do you... Do you get dragged into like faster starts and then kind of slow down when the pack starts to separate out, or do you, are you like really good at keeping with your own timing and your own game plan?
0: Yeah, that's it's interesting. I I think I have mixed feelings in that I I enjoy. The woman start where you can see a woman cross the line and break the tape and it's exciting for fans and for young girls to look mm-hmm. and see that, not just like looking in the distance for the first woman when all these men are coming through. I, I really Think that's valuable. And, um, you know, in Ottawa, just a couple of weeks ago, I ran the 10K and the women start first. They get like a head start ahead of the men. And so they have a, a prize bonus for the first person to cross the line. So that's really neat to see because it does end up that it's kind of man versus woman. Oh, okay. And, um, so, but having said that, um, when I was doing the race, like as I've gotten kind of a little bit slow over the last couple of years, as soon as the men start to pass you, it's a bit demoralizing. So like, you know, as soon as you see the media trucks that are following the men, you're like, oh no, I, because you're, you're on the camera, you're on the live feed and you're like, oh, please just pass me (laughs) and stop filming. (laughs) (laughs) So like here, it seems to be closer and closer and it's like, oh, just get it over with. And then like, you have all these men passing you and they're going so fast because they've caught up to you and they're going faster to, to pass you. You haven't started at the same time. It's not like you're, you know, kind of cat and mouse back and forth. So like, oh, there's another guy. Oh, there's another guy. But in that race, it was about like near the end, uh, a woman kind of caught up and was passing me and I actually picked it up and passed her and, and finished ahead of her. So, you know, that just kind of goes to show that you, you do race within yourself and you're, capability when you're training with people and racing with people that are the same. Right. So, you know, other women that, that we were kind of doing the cat and mouse thing, but um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that there's, you know, kind of two ways to look at that or different ways that I feel about it.
1: Are there enough women that race at the master's level that, that that's not a situation you need to be in uh, too often? Like you'll be able to have master's level, women's only events or how does that shape up, um, you know, going forward in, in terms of master's events, or do you think there's more opportunity for, for mixed starts?
0: Uh, well, like, I think when it comes to master's running, you know, our, our masters runners are, are doing really well for females, Mm -hmm. you know, Sasha Golish, Natasha Wodak, Emily Setlack, Melindy Elmore, they're all 40 up and they're all, you know, running really well. So when I run against them, I don't even think I'm competing against them. However, you know, when I get on the line, I, I look back, I'm like, I'm competing against like the Krista Duchesne of 15 years ago. Right. So then I, you know, these these women that are in their early twenties, that's kind of neat because there's always someone to compete against, but I'm pretty realistic to know where I stand in terms of where I sit, should finish. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's kind of where I, I see myself in terms of whom I'm competing with, because like I said, the masters Canadian runners are, are really fast.
1: And I'm five years older than them, right? I'm 45. I'm not yeah. just 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know the difference between 45 and 40. <laughs> I feel it all the time. Um, But I guess, you know, especially um, with running, where all of your races are timed, how, how do you manage your expectations and goals going into the Masters events? Because you actually, you know, unlike you know, soccer or fencing where it's like... Or hockey where it's like game to game. I got X number of goals. And there's so many factors that go into like... And fencing is very like... For example, all bouts end at like five five points. And indicators change, you know, plus minuses change day to day, bout to bout. Like there's no really... It's not so in your face like... This is what my time was 10 years ago. Here's what it is now. And you can actually see... Your progress, um, whether it's a mostly forward progress or a mostly level progress or a decline. So, as you you get older, how do you manage your expectations, and and how do you um, be kind to <laughs> to yourself, and and recognize have you done enough in running um, in terms of reaching? I, I don't know how you can uh, really go beyond getting to the A Olympics and placing it you know one of the most well-known marathons in the world but how do you how do you manage that going going forward when you you have so much data to show you that you're changing
0: i i think like the olympics was was in at my mind at the time, the peak. So it was like anything after that is a bonus. So then I got third in Boston. It's like, Oh, this is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. And I guess I still have that, that outlook or that mentality that anything can happen at, at the same time. I'm, I'm realistic about, um, you know, my goals and my times, right? Like I know I'm not going to run a personal best anymore, but I had to choose to age gracefully and not fight it. So when I go to races, I've got no problem with other runners that I used to compete against and beat with them going ahead and winning these races. Like I, I know where I stand. So it's, it's neat that I can look at that. And so I'm still challenging myself, but you know, I've been going after Canadian age 45 um records. So that's motivating. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I want to finish the the world major. So that's a, a motivating factory factor for me as well. Um, but it, it's it's not about time and money or making national teams. It's just kind of staying in it because I, I still love it and I wake up every day wanting to run.
1: So going forward from here, you're just gonna keep trying to own records as you get through to each different age group the best that you can. That seems like a pretty, a pretty good goal. It seem you know, there's always, there's always a a record that you can aim for, even if it wasn't the same as it was at 35, you know, you can still look, oh, hey, there's like a 40 year old record that doesn't have my name on, or there's a 45 year old or a 50 year old that does sort of feel like there's something to always go after, which is kind of nice. Yeah, for
0: sure. And, you know, you, you look at people who are, you know, still running like well into their seventies and Hey, I want to be like that. I, I just, you know, I love the sport. I don't need to ever announce any retirement because I didn't ever announce a debut because I was just a recreational athlete. So, um, yeah, I think that has a lot to, to do with it. And, you know, now trying to to get a record at 45, like I have to work for it, and I hope it happens, but like so the to beat the the ten k record um I have to run like thirty five low well, I used to be able to run you know thirty five and under like just just like that, but now it's it's a bit more work, but then that's what we like about the sport is challenging ourselves to to work hard and and see what we can do in the day of
1: awesome that's amazing, so amazing, I love that. That you've been in this this sport for like 20 years now. You've been to Olympics. You've been to world championships. You've been to some of the biggest marathons. And you still have this like competitive fire, right? Like that's a long time. That's a long time. That is longevity right there to be in a sport for that long and still have, you know, records to aim for and, and times to beat. Um, and to to continue to want to do it. It's, it's amazing. It's really amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and talking with me and, and, and sharing that. And I hope you do break that record, <laughs> you know, that's Thanks. so great. No, it
0: definitely
1: won't be easy. <laughs> no, no.
0: Yeah. It's fun to talk and share my story and i'm I'm coaching now i'm really liking that um you know i'm i I'm not doing high performance coaching don't really have a desire for that i just i'm coaching um runners who've never done a marathon before or who want to hit their Boston qualifiers. And I'm really liking, you know, people who are juggling life and family and kids and and their careers and kind of just challenging them, but yet being realistic about it's not always going to work perfectly. And yeah, I'm really liking that part of it as well.
1: Amazing. Krista, thank you so much. It's been uh, a real pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes, go to silvergoldwomen.com forward slash episode 17. Follow this podcast on Facebook and Twitter at Silver Gold Women. For more episodes, subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and share it too. Music for this podcast was crafted by the extremely talented Outwild. He knows what I like. Every time I hear these beats, I dance in my seat. If you like his music, you can listen to him on SoundCloud at It's Outwild. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at It's Outwild. Shout out goes to Amy for suggesting a reach out to Krista. This episode was made in huge part because of you. Until next time, play hard, play smart.